0: At either 414 442 7411 or at www.parklawn.org. I hope to meet you soon. In 1994, Paul Rusa Begina was a manager of a hotel. He and his wife were living a very happy life with their, raising their three children in the African nation of Rwanda. But in 1994, Paul, who was a Hutu, and his wife, who was of the Tutsi tribe, began seeing the genocide of nearly a million Rwandans in a period of 100 days. For a period of time, the hotel that Paul managed was occupied by UN uh, forces and officials. And so it was somewhat of a safe zone, a city of refuge when the United Nations pulled out and the massacre continued, Paul was left alone to try to protect the lives of these refugees who were fleeing for shelter into his hotel. That genocide, the, the, the harvest of the genocide, was planted by seeds nearly 100 years before that when German and Belgian governments began to colonize the Rwandans and they began placing the dominant Tutsi force uh, tribes in positions of power over the Hutus the Belgians when they began to uh, colonize the nation They began to define the people by race. They defined the Tutsi as anyone with more than 10 cows or a long nose. I guess I'd be a Tutsi if I were in Rwanda. I don't have 10 cows, but I think I got a long nose. They defined the Hutu as someone who had less than 10 cows and a broad nose. And they began to socially, economically divide the Tutsis and the Hutus that led later to this Rwandan genocide. I don't know if any of you have studied Latin, but there is a, there's a term, divide et impera. Anybody ever heard that? Divide et impera. You've, you've heard it before. Let me give you the English translation. Divide and conquer. It's a strategy that's been used for the, from the ages. Every government, whether it's German, British, Chinese, Hispanic, Russian, even our own government, has used the divide and conquer strategy. And you know what else? The devil uses it too. He's the master of it. Basically, if you can divide people over small differences, they're much easier to control or to overcome. If you can break people up into groups, dividing how they look, how they think, how much money they have, instead of who they are designed by God to be, you can control them. And you know what? The devil has been using that tactic against the people of God since he came to the earth. He's been... Dividing and conquering the church denominationally, racially, class-wise, gender-wise. But this morning, my purpose, my aim, and this month is to expose Satan's strategies. Amen. Mm-hmm. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll put it up on the screen. You can use your electronic device. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. See, the devil has methods. He has war strategies. He has tactics. Pastor Jason Mims who last week just launching this series off by taking us through the armor of God. But there's some people that are here today and there's some people that you work with and people that live in your neighborhood, people in your own families, people that you're going to encounter through the course of this week that are experiencing some of these tactics of the devil. One of the tactics of the devil besides the divide and conquer. Is a tactic called blockade and siege. This is actually a it's a military, it's a war strategy to blockade and siege. And that's when you cut off your enemy or your opponent from their food source. You cut off uh, your enemy from their supply line. In, in in every major war, that's what happens. If your enemy cannot get to their to their artillery, to their reinforcements. It's just a matter of time before they run out of resources. And that's what's happened in the body of Christ, that some of us have been cut off from prayer. We've been cut off from fellowship. We've been cut off from, from worship. We've been cut off from people that we should be able to trust in a, in, to have access into our lives. The enemy has used the blockade and siege tactic very well. Another tactic and strategy of war that the enemy uses is called decapitation. Sounds very gruesome, doesn't it? Decapitation is achieved by targeting political leadership or targeting the command and control center. And literally, you go for the head. You go for the general. You go for the one who is in charge. You go for the one who's given the orders and the commands. You cut off those key economic connection points, those entrance ramps, you go after the leaders. The enemy knows that if you strike the the shepherd that the sheep are going to scatter. If you cut off the head, the body's going to die. And so leadership are a primary target for the enemy. That truth, it shouldn't surprise us because the enemy knows that when a leader falls, that the followers are going to be wounded in the process. This is a sobering thought for me every day of my life. Lord, please hold me. Please keep me. Don't let me fall. Because if the leader falls, doubt will begin to seep into those who are following. The enemy knows that there will be a widespread fallout. There will be a crumbling of the organization. So he aims carefully his arrow at the leadership. Y'all just need to be praying for me right now and for your pastors and leaders. The enemy knows that if he can win on this front, at least temporarily, when the leader's failings and finality and frailties are exposed, that it will distract the church from their mission and from their purpose. I don't have to remind you of all of the political governmental business economic religious leaders that have fallen right i I don't have to give you the names but it happens every day he uses strategies like deception he uses strategies like distraction he uses encirclement he uses exhaustion some of us are just exhausted just don't have any more fight in us Come on, the bomb's going off all the time. The the, the air attack is designed to just wear the enemy out before even the foot soldiers show up. So before you even uh, engage in any hand-to-hand combat, you're ready to wave the white flag. I surrender. I'm just tired. Please stop. The enemy uses a flanking maneuver. When the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt and they were into the wilderness, uh, the Amalekites didn't attack them at their, their strong point at the front, but they flanked them, they maneuvered and came around the back and they began to attack the weakest members of the, of the tribes of Israel, began to attack the children and the elderly, those who were weak. That's, that's how the enemy works. He's like a lion. The Bible says in First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion is walking around seeking who we may devour. The lion does not attack the strongest animal. He flanks and he comes around to get the weakest, the easy ones. So if you are not connected to the body, don't let the devil decapitate you. Don't let him flank you. Don't let him exhaust you because he's looking for the slow, the weak, the disconnected. It's even true when Jesus was alone in the wilderness. The enemy saw weakness in Jesus. He didn't have a team yet. He hadn't called his disciples. Certainly he had the affirmation of his father from heaven and the spirit rested upon him in the form of a dove and obediently he went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, but he was weak. He had fasted for 40 days. Come on, some of you are weak after missing two meals, right? Imagine fasting for 40 days and 40 nights without food. The Bible says he was hungry, and that's when the enemy came in and attacked his identity. If you are the son of God. See, the enemy will attack your identity, and what he's really after is your mind. He wants to challenge your thoughts. The warfare is in the mind. There's a battle going on in the mind. Let me show you, give you an illustration of how Satan influences all of us. Some of you all may not be convinced. There was a woman one day who had went to a department store and she bought a very, very, very expensive dress. When she brought it home and her husband found out how much she had spent, he was livid. He said, why in the world would you buy that expensive dress? You know we can't afford that. And the woman looked at her husband and said, but honey, you don't understand. The devil made me do it. She said, I tried and I tried, but the devil just kept on talking to me. He said, girlfriend, you look awesome in that dress. That's you all over. That's your color. That's your length. That's your size. Don't worry about the price. You got to have that dress. And the husband said, well, baby, now we're Christians, you know what the scripture says. Why didn't you tell the devil to get behind you? She said, I did. I told him to get behind me. And he said, You look good from back there, too, girl. You better get that dress. <laughs> the devil made her do it. You see, you just can't get rid of Satan that easy, he's everywhere. He's not omnipresent like God is, but he and his forces, they've been watching us. They've been watching our families for generations, and they know the proclivities and the weaknesses and the appetites and the habits and the desires and the attitudes that we all have. And so if we're going to expose Satan's strategies, one of the strategies is that he tries to convince people that he's not even real, that he doesn't exist. The Barna uh, Christian Research Firm did a study years ago, and they determined that 60% of Christians don't believe in the devil or in hell. 60%. Six out of ten. There's there's a popular uh, uh, preacher in the state of Arkansas and a singer right now. His name is Tim Rogers. He did a funeral for a young person uh, earlier this year. And at the funeral of these young people, uh, he preached and he said hell is not real that's what's happening in the body of Christ we're believing the lie of the enemy and I want you to understand that my purpose and my aim today is not to glorify and exalt the devil this is not a sermon about the devil I'm not I'm not empowering Satan you know we need to just understand that that Satan is not God's equal If we were to just simply talk about opposites, the opposite of up is what? The opposite of black is, the opposite of hungry is, full. The opposite of God is, no, the opposite of God is not the devil. There is no opposite of God. (laughs) Come on, God is God by himself. The devil is God's devil. God is the creator. The devil is a creation. He was made to worship God as Lucifer the angel of light but when he fell from his position of worship God said I'm going to use you now for warfare you still belong to me you still have to submit to my purposes and the enemy's ultimate destiny is to spend eternity in the lake of fire so we're not here to glorify him God's always in control even in the end times there's still his time God's on the throne amen So the Bible tells us about the origin of Satan and I won't take the time to read Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, but you can jot those scriptures down and you can read about Lucifer being created as a light bearer, as a worshiper and how he fell from heaven and was cast out of heaven with a third of the angels, the stars in heaven because of the pride that rose up on the inside of him. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 16 and 18 that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit goes before a fall. Anytime you and I are operating in pride, we are operating in the spirit of the devil. It was through pride that Satan deceived Adam and Eve. And the Bible tells us even that when he came to tempt Jesus, he tempted Jesus the same way he tempted Adam and Eve with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Pride is, the, is a surefire way for God to set up a, a, a defensive strategy against you. I don't know about you, but I don't want God to fight against me. I want to be on the Lord's side. But the Bible tells us that God hates pride. In James 4 and 6, he says God resists. That means that God sets himself in a battle formation against the proud. But he gives his grace to the humble. In verse 7, he says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You will never succeed when you are operating in pride. God will ensure that you don't succeed. He resists the proud. So let me bring this a little closer to home. How does this apply to you and I? So there is a challenge for us. There's a challenge for us. Understanding the strategy of the enemy is to divide and conquer. The challenge is, how do we worship God and submit to human leadership without worshiping human leadership and resisting God? How do we do that? How do we worship God and submit to human leadership? How do we, how do we disagree without bringing disunity? The greatest threat to the church is not opposition from the outside it's division from within our greatest your great fact your greatest threat is, is is your your own flesh it's the warfare on the inside of you and the same thing is true with the church it's division on the inside of the body of Christ it's not the enemy on the outside it's not the storms of the world on the outside it's what's happening inside of our heart the enemy is after our unity If he can destroy our unity through a strategy of dividing and conquer, he can have his way. He can have his way in in any marriage if he can divide and conquer that husband and wife. He can have his way in any family if he can divide and conquer. The old saints used to say, I can smell sulfur when they sensed that the devil was at work. You know, because sulfur is, I believe that's what hell is going to smell like. I don't know. I don't plan on finding out and getting that close. But I understand what they meant. I can smell sulfur. That meant that I I I can sense the devil is working in this situation. How can you tell if the devil is working in a situation? Now, he doesn't come dressed up in a red jumpsuit with a tail and a pitchfork in his hand but he comes disguised as an angel of light. So it's it's hard to understand if the devil is working. But James gives us a big picture in James chapter 3 and verse 14 to know when the devil is working. This is how you know. James says, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, go ahead and do the test. Is that me? Is he talking to me? Do I have bitter envy? Do I have selfish ambition in my heart? He says, don't boast about it. Don't deny the truth. He says, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Then it is peace-loving. It is considerate. It is submissive. It is full of mercy and good fruit. It is impartial and sincere. Verse 18 says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So wherever you find this self-dependence and wherever you find pride, that's evidence that the enemy is working. It's quiet in here. Is this mic still working? Okay, I just want to make sure y'all are still here. Please don't become a weapon of mass destruction in the enemy's hands. Don't be a bomb that the enemy, don't be a suicide bomber. Dressed like everybody else, talking like everybody else, coming into the body of Christ and then exploding on the enemy's behalf. The devil wants to divide and conquer. But God wants us to walk in unity. Come on, Jesus prayed for unity in John chapter 17. He says, Father, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in them. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. So that they may be brought to complete unity. Now this is why the devil don't want us to be in unity. Because Jesus says, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That's what the enemy is after. He's after our unity. But anytime you find a church that's committed to unity... Anytime you find a people of God that are are pursuing souls to bring them into right right relationship with Jesus and a discipling, growing relationship, you will definitely see the enemy opposing that church. That's what happened in the church of Acts. The very beginning of the founding of the church, the enemy rose up in Acts chapter 6. The, The unity was attacked. The Greek-speaking widows and the Hebrew-speaking widows, they were opposition. The, the Greeks felt like they were uh, being disenfranchised, that they weren't receiving the same favor and, and saved proportion of, of food or whatever the allotment was. And that disagreement arose so sharply that it threatened the unity and the growth, the witness of the church. But it was only by the wisdom of the apostles and the grace of the Holy Spirit that they said, let's choose some from the minority to have administration over the property and over the goods. And the grace of God continued to rest upon the church and it continued to multiply. But the enemy is always aiming his arrows at leaders and he's aiming it at our unity. Some of you might, without even knowing it, be pretty close to being in the devil's hands. Remember, the warfare starts in the mind. That's where the wrestling takes place. And if we don't win it, win the battle in our minds through the weapons that God has given us to pull down strongholds and to challenge and take captive every thought and bring it to the obedience of Christ, if we don't win it in our mind, it's going to then move to our mouth. And once it moves from our mouth, it's going to begin to manifest in our behavior but then most of us can't even see it. We can't see that the behavior is, is, is attacking the unity. There's another military term called friendly fire. That's when we begin to shoot our allies. We begin to shoot the people who are on our side. And that's, that's one of the unfortunate situations that happens in times of war. That sometimes the, the fog and the smoke from the bomb is so thick that you don't know who you're shooting. Your mind can become so clouded with with perceiving your own rights and your own opinions that you can begin to attack those who are on your side. That's why Paul reminded us that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Let me put it in, in today's vernacular. People are not the enemy. People are not your enemy. There are people who have been disenfranchised and cut off from the body of Christ and from the fellowship thinking that people is the enemy. The pastor is my enemy. The the, the leaders are my enemies. Nobody's doing what I think should happen. The battle starts in your mind. It moves to your mouth. It manifests in your behavior. Our enemy wants to take the focus off of him. He wants you to put your focus on people. I want you to just say this to your neighbor. Because I know the problem is not with you. Say, protect the unity. Tell them to get back in place. <laughs> and now you've asked them. You've made a statement. And then I'm going to ask a question of you. Is that question is whose side are you on? Second Timothy chapter two verse twenty-five. Paul was writing to Timothy and saying, as a pastor, this is how you are to respond. He says, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Wow. So it's possible that the devil could deceive me To do his will? To do his work? Yes, it is. Gary Selman wrote an article called Spiritual Warfare in the Executive Suite. He talks about how not just in the church and not just in our personal lives, but even in our professional settings, the places where you work, spiritual warfare is happening. Calls it the Executive Suite. He says it starts with sedition. Sedition starts whenever members, and I'm quoting him, whenever members of the team begin to question, stand apart, or discard the company's vision, values, belief, and goals to pursue their own personal agenda. Anytime you put your personal agenda above the corporate agenda, you're being rebellious and divisive. They begin to focus on differences rather than look for common ground. This divisive attitude of discontent begins in the mind, moves to the mouth, and followed by rebellious behavior. It often leads to rebellion and open resistance to authority. So he gives us some warning signs, and I'm just taking this from him. These are nine stages. I'm going to go through them very quickly. There are nine stages that lead to disunity in the church. He says, number one, is an independent spirit that fosters an attitude of discontentment and dissatisfaction. Number two is a desire for personal recognition and elevation of personal status. And you can just check the box that applies to you or leave it blank if it doesn't. Number three is a distortion of the views of the leader. Number four is a critical, prideful, and judgmental attitude. Don't look at nobody, just keep looking at me. Nobody have to know that it might apply to you. Keep looking straight ahead. Number five, a prideful exaltation of self above or at the expense of the leader. Number six, attempts to give recognition and attention to others who are disenchanted. That's what Absalom did in in David's kingdom. Number seven is justification and rationalization of opposition to the leader. You justify your opposition. Number eight, an emphasis on or an exaggeration of minor points or issues. And he says the ninth sign is you break off and you form a splinter group, and it becomes us versus them. I know this is not park lawn, but there's probably some church that this can apply to. So just take notes and pass it on to your co workers. But God has given us a strategy for overcoming the spirit that's attacking our unity. And number one is to honor God in all that we do. Whatever we do, we have to do it for the glory of God. We have to do it not for people, not to please people, but to glorify God. Number two, we have to be obedient to God's word by submitting to authority. Period. Number three, just be loyal. Number four, just be faithful. You're not doing it unto men, you're doing it unto God, but do it with all of your heart. That's how we win this battle. And then as Jason told us last week, the Lord says, Paul says, just be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We draw our strength from God. Our victory comes from trusting in God, not trusting in ourselves. But he tells us at the end of that, of that exhortation in, Eph- in Ephesus 6.18. He says, keep watch and be alert for the next attack of the devil. He might not be attacking you today, but keep watch because he's looking for you to let your guard down. He's looking for a weakness. He's looking for somebody to, to, to drift away, someone to get disconnected with the leadership, disconnected with the vision, disconnected in the fellowship, discontented." Keep watch. And as we're going to learn this Wednesday, we need to watch ourselves. We need to do some spiritual warfare over ourselves. I'll close with this. In Exodus 32, Moses was on top of the mountain receiving the first set of the tablets of the Ten Commandments. You know, he got two sets. The first one were destroyed. He broke them. When he came down from the mountain, Aaron had abused his leadership and took the golden jewelry from the people and made a golden calf for the people to worship. Now, that's a, that's a picture of rebellion and of division. We're dividing from our leader. We're dividing from God. We're going to appoint you as our leader. We're going we're to choose a new God. We're going to worship a different way, a different style. And when Moses came down, while Moses was up on the mountain, God said to Moses, you need to go down because your people, not my people, but your people, God disowned them because they weren't acting like him. And when Moses got there and he saw the golden calf, he said to Aaron, what have you done? He challenged him face to face. He saw that the people were unrestrained. That reminds me of Proverbs 29 and 18 that says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Where, the, where, there, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Where, it is, where there is no leadership and no vision, the people live any way that they want to live. They determine their own standard of right or wrong. Let me just say this, and this is not to, uh, to puff myself up, but leadership is a gift from God. It's a blessing from God. Without leadership, we have no order. We, we, we have no direction. We have no mark. We have no standard. We accomplish nothing. We waste resources. We waste time. The people were unrestrained. And Moses made this statement. He said, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. And the entire tribe of the sons of Levi moved away from the crowd and walked over to Moses' side. Said, Moses, we understand we're with you. And Moses told them, strap on your sword. And there were 3,000 of the Israelites that were killed that day. That's what happens when there's disunity. There's casualties of war in the body of Christ in the family of God. That was never God's intent. The devil came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And we need to expose that strategy of the enemy today. And we need to, we need to repent of it. We need to repent of it. This, this message is, is really aimed. God has taken the two-edged sword and he's not cutting up the sinner and cutting up the world. He's saying this word is for my people, It's for my church. And it starts with those who are at the tip of the spear, those who are in leadership. So if you're part of the pastoral staff, part of the eldership, part of the commission ministers, I want you, first of all, to stand right now. I know many of you are here. Some will be a part of the 11 o'clock service. But if you're here right now, just stand right where you are. You are the tip of the spear. We've got to be on one accord. Amen. Amen. Lawn Assembly of God exists to share the light, life, and love of Jesus Christ. As a part of this mission, join us for special services, workshops, and encounters. Park Lawn Assembly of God is located at 3725 North Sherman Boulevard, right in the heart of the city of Milwaukee. You can contact us by phone or on the web at either 414-442-7411 or at www.parklawn.org. I hope to meet you soon.